Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Making Peace with Emotions. If you're experiencing an emotional problem and troubled by anxiety, depression, panic, anger, or any other emotion, you probably feel like you're under a lot of pressure. You may have been given strong messages from the world you live in and from the people you are close to that your task in life is to always feel happy, never feel scared, and never fail. That that is what is normal. And that if you haven't got what it takes to rid yourself of blemishes, negativity, and unresolved issues, then you deserve hardship. Everything is your fault. That's a lot of pressure. What if everything isn't your fault? What if there are things in life that you simply can't control? What if there are things that you don't need to control and that even provide health benefits when left alone? What if negative emotions like anxiety and depression are natural processes that you are not responsible for controlling? In my journey of recovery from emotional problems, it has helped me to think about whether my emotions can really be controlled or eliminated. Maybe the assumption that I should be able to choose which emotions I feel is an assumption that has put pressure on me to do the impossible. Learning to see the adaptiveness of all my emotions has let me off the hook for doing the impossible and freed up my energy for doing what is possible. In the previous episode, I read the first chapter of Making Peace with Anxiety and Depression, a book written by my former therapist, the late Dr. Amr Barada. The chapter was called The Willingness to Suffer, and this idea of being willing to suffer is important in the recovery from emotional problems. Everyone with any kind of emotional problem is operating from a place of perfectionism. We perceive any imperfections, especially in ourselves, as unacceptable. So it follows that if things like failures and problems are unacceptable, then that means perfection is possible. And everything should be able to be controlled, including ordinary, everyday suffering. I should be able to do something about the fact that life is imperfect, that death and disease and harm and missed opportunities and failed relationships are all realities. We all come to terms somehow with those painful aspects of life, and people with emotional problems address them by making great efforts to change how we feel. We have a strong conviction that the problem is how we feel about the things we can't change. But it might be the case that emotions themselves should be included in that category of things we can't change. What if I'm not responsible for the fact that life is sometimes messy for all of us? And what if it's actually a sign that my emotions are working well when I'm scared about the things that scare me and sad about the tragedies I experience? As I've become more willing to have my feelings, I've come to see that they actually make simple sense and have relevance in my life. The fact that I am uncomfortable when I feel negative emotions is not something that I need to do anything about. Negative emotions are meant to feel uncomfortable. Stress and anxiety are good in that they tell me what areas of my life I want to tend to. 
The feelings themselves I can let be. I'm off the hook for them. I'm going to pick up where we left off last episode and read chapter two from Amr's book, Making Peace with Anxiety and Depression. This chapter is called From Old Beliefs to New Beliefs. And if you want to get the book yourself, which I highly recommend, you can get it on lulu.com. That's L-U-L-U. Search for Amr Barada's name, A-M-R-B-A-R-R-A-D-A. And you'll find the book on there, and you can get it in print or ebook format. Chapter 2. From Old Beliefs to New Beliefs. And this chapter starts with a quote. When a personal revolution occurs, one would expect it to be both painful and profound. There should be at least preliminary resistance to giving up old beliefs. The absence of an alternative paradigm, belief system, would be expected to deter revolution. Thus, two of the primary functions of the therapist may be to 1. assist the client in perceiving or developing an alternative paradigm, and 2. guide the client through experiences that challenge the old paradigm. Michael J. Mahoney, 1980 The way we understand how emotional problems develop and how they are maintained plays a most significant role in how we go about resolving these problems. This book will present a way of understanding emotional problems that differs in some significant ways from other approaches. Those approaches are often grounded in generalized beliefs that are shared by significant numbers of people in our society, but are not necessarily conducive to mental health. You might find it instructive to see how many of these beliefs you share with the general public. 1. One prevalent belief is that people develop emotional problems because there is something defective about them. There is something deeply and mysteriously abnormal about them. They are profoundly flawed. If you have had an emotional problem, be it with anxiety or depression or any other emotion, you are probably convinced of the truth of this belief. What you probably have not considered is that this belief is not only a response to your emotional problems, but is a major part of what causes your emotional problems. Therefore, you might wish to consider that instead of thinking you have a problem because there is something abnormal about you, that it is your belief that there is something abnormal about you that has led you to develop an emotional problem. It makes you think and behave in ways that reinforce your belief that you're abnormal. There's an important difference between, on the one hand, believing that you're abnormal, and on the other hand, knowing that you have a problem. Emotional problems are very real and need to be taken very seriously. But that's different from the belief that there's something abnormal about you, which is not necessarily grounded in reality. It is best described as a self-perception. Whether or not you have that belief depends much more on how you view yourself. For example, having a negative opinion of yourself, and on how you were socialized, than on actually being abnormal. People who grow up feeling that there's something abnormal about them, that they are deeply defective in some way, and therefore harbor a pronounced sense of shame and low self-esteem about themselves, are those who are at risk of developing an emotional problem at some point in their lives. 
please take a moment to reflect on the first time you had a strong experience with the emotion that is now troubling you, such as anxiety or depression. And you responded to it by saying to yourself, Oh my God, what's wrong with me? Something terrible is happening to me. This is not normal. I shouldn't be feeling this way. Had you processed the emotion by seeing it as a natural and normal response to the circumstances in your life at the time, by making simple sense of it, and by seeing the emotion as acceptable, you would not have come up with such an intense and troubled response. This book takes a view that there is nothing flawed about the character of emotionally troubled people. There is nothing deeply defective about them. They are not abnormal. They do have severe problems. But these are not the result of character flaws or deep mysterious impairments. They are mostly the result of having developed a complex set of very bad mental habits that they are mostly unaware of, and that are capable of causing severe emotional problems. In fact, one of the most significant of these mental habits is the conviction that they are irreversibly defective or impaired in some manner. One of the most commonly spoken statements by emotionally troubled people is, there's something wrong with me. And it's not as much an admission that they have a problem as it is an anguished expression of a conviction that there's something deeply and mysteriously abnormal about them. When emotionally troubled people are confronted about their belief of being defective, they often repeat the belief. But there is something wrong with me. My feelings are not normal. Nobody should feel this way. Nobody should have such strong feelings. People can end up spending large chunks of their lives effortfully engrossed in the search for what's abnormal about them and achieving little but constant anguish. Let us say you suffer an enormous personal loss and you respond naturally by grieving intensely. If you allow the grieving to run its natural course, without much emotional or mental manipulation, probably nothing more will happen to you than an experience of intense sadness that lasts for a period of time and then subsides. It lasts for as long as it needs to last. This emotional experience is not something you can help or do anything about, and, in fact, in some important ways, can have an important function. But if you decide that there's something terribly abnormal about your feelings, for example, they are too intense, or they have lasted too long, or you simply have a profound aversion against negative emotions and don't want to experience them, then something else happens. You get upset at yourself. You are not just bothered by the emotion. You become troubled by it. You tell yourself, there's something wrong with me, meaning that there is something about you that is defective. You then become unwilling to feel the emotional pain. You try hard to control and eliminate it. This attitude, in a nutshell, is what leads to clinical depression. You're not just sad anymore. You're no longer just suffering. You wage a war against yourself and your emotions. Your personal tragedy now has become a state of chronic psychological torment. And it is all triggered by the perceptions, by the beliefs, that one, your feelings are flawed, two, are unacceptable, and three, you should work very hard at getting rid of them. If this characterization is correct, then it stands to reason that any approach that conveys to emotionally troubled people that there is something deeply defective about them will actually reinforce their emotional troubles. Conversely, 
an approach that helps them normalize their unwanted thoughts and feelings will be essential to their long-term recovery. Let us also take an example of panic attacks. If you have a panic attack and perceive it as abnormal, you are likely then to believe that it is dangerous. You have that perception every time a panic attack occurs, until the thought that panic attacks are dangerous becomes embedded in your subconscious mind. How it becomes embedded that way and what to do about that are key questions to ask. We usually think that how we see reality is an accurate reflection of what is real. But a great deal of research has shown that that is not often the case. Reality as we see it is more likely a product of our own subjective beliefs. For example, we construct reality by processing what's going on around us according to our values. There's nothing about a negative emotion or a panic attack that is intrinsically dangerous. It's the meaning that you give to it that determines how you'll process it and how it affects you. One person can see a panic attack as very dangerous, while another might see it in more benign terms. One person can see it as totally senseless, while someone else can appreciate the meaning that it conveys. Constructive psychology has had many proponents. For example, Mike and Baum and Fitzpatrick, 1993, point out that it is not the symptoms per se, but what individuals say to themselves about those symptoms that is important to the adaptive process. Irrational thinking. There are many examples of the defects emotionally troubled people are supposed to have. Some people put the blame on irrational thinking, seeing people with emotional problems as having defective ways of reasoning. Their skills in logic are weak or flawed. They do not examine the evidence for why they have the thoughts and feelings they have, and so arrive at mistaken and unrealistic conclusions about what they fear or what they're depressed about. If you're sad or anxious or angry, it's because you've allowed yourself to feel that way, and you should therefore be able to bring these feelings under control or get rid of them. You do this by talking to yourself about how unrealistic and irrational your emotions are, which helps you talk yourself out of having these emotions, and you will eventually not have an emotional problem. While it is helpful to encourage emotionally troubled people to be accurate and realistic about their fears and concerns, an approach that focuses strongly on teaching emotionally troubled people how to think logically, especially when it is the overriding focus of attention, can have harmful results in the long term. Emotionally troubled people, in fact, suffer from an excess of the opposite problem. They are excessively logical and depend too much on rational processes to resolve their emotional difficulties. And by so doing, they get into trouble with their thoughts and feelings. Thinking rationally becomes a way of controlling or eliminating the emotion in question, which is impossible to do and only results in becoming more troubled by the emotion. A great deal of research has shown that, contrary to expectation, depressed people have an inclination to be very realistic and that well-adjusted people are not that realistic about life, and in fact do not mind twisting reality a little. This theory was first proposed by W. Mischel, 1979, and has been corroborated quite extensively. It is part of a general theory about how people don't necessarily deal with reality as it is, but as they want it to be. Well-adjusted people, far from being the rational, logical, accurate, realistic people we think they should be, 
actually manage their lives by engaging in quite a bit of distortion with how they perceive reality. They tend to think that they have a lot more control than they actually do. They tend to think that they're a lot better off than they actually are. And they even think more highly of themselves than other people do. They engage in a great deal of self-enhancement. Roy Baumeister, 1989, thinks that Optimal psychological functioning is associated with a slight to moderate degree of distortion in one's perception of self and the world. By looking at things as being a little better than they actually are, people, quote, enjoy the effective benefits of illusions while avoiding the pragmatic behavioral risks of acting on false assumptions. People who suffer from anxiety disorders also appear to have, quote, irrational fears. But it is a mistake to think that the irrational fears derive from irrational thinking. There's a big difference between being irrational and sounding irrational. People with emotional problems often sound extremely irrational, and so it's easy to assume that they suffer from a deficit in rational thinking. But an alternative view says that the persistence of irrational-sounding thoughts derives from other processes, such as an unwillingness to have negative feelings, and from an unwillingness to have thoughts that are not rational. The more a person is unwilling to have non-rational thoughts and feelings, the more these are reinforced. And it is that process which results in what appears to be irrational thinking. We might even want to question whether there exist such things as irrational emotions. Even before seeking therapy, emotionally troubled people are trying very hard to eliminate their negative thoughts through logical processes. So why have they not succeeded? Perhaps it is the vigorous attempt to be rational that is part of what results in the development of an emotional problem. It's easy to convince our rational mind that there's nothing to fear. People with emotional problems have no trouble doing that. The important challenge they face is to convince their non-rational minds that they're not in danger. Let us take the example of a person who washes her hands dozens of times in succession in order to get rid of, quote, germs. No one should be blamed for concluding that she suffers from some kind of cognitive deficit. Doesn't she realize that her hands are clean after one or two washings and that all these other washings are unnecessary? Even a child could see that. But what if there are other processes that can better explain her behavior? On the one hand, she's a perfectionist who cannot tolerate the thought that her hands might be contaminated, even a little, which prompts her to wash her hands excessively. Since perfection is very difficult to achieve, she keeps on washing her hands until she feels they're perfectly clean, which can take a very long time. On the other hand, she tries excessively to stop washing her hands, which generates so much anxiety that it can only be alleviated by more hand-washing. She's damned if she continues to wash her hands and damned if she stops washing them. This can create a double bind which leads to feeling trapped. It is the self-entrapment that is responsible for the excessive washing, not irrational thinking. In fact, the harder she tries to eliminate this problem through rational thinking, for example, by incessantly pounding herself with exhortations to be rational as a way of stopping the behavior, the more she generates anxiety that can be alleviated only by more of the same behavior. If one takes a good look at the behavior of people suffering from anxiety problems, one can clearly see minds that are functioning in very logical ways. 
What is the motivation of an agoraphobic who doesn't want to shop at the mall? It proceeds along very logical ways of thinking, such as, Why should I go to the mall when I know for sure I will have a panic attack, feel totally miserable, feel forced to leave, and vow never to go to another mall again? Most avoidances have the same logical-sounding reasoning for not engaging in activities. So what is going on here, and how should chronic avoiders be helped? I think an important distinction should be made between being rational and being sensible. The agoraphobic person who won't go to the mall can tell herself that even though it makes logical sense to avoid the situation, it is not sensible to do so, because it will ultimately lead to more avoidances, and eventually she will put her life on hold so much that major dysfunction can occur. Inability to relax Another commonly held view is that people who suffer from anxiety disorders are defective in their ability to relax, and therefore need to learn relaxation skills. Such a position appears so right and accurate that it seems hard to dispute. However, what is not obvious is that relaxation training can have the exact opposite effect, in that it tells anxious people that there is something wrong with being anxious, and that they should control and eliminate it by learning to relax. Psychologists have found that relaxation procedures often have the opposite effect. Instead of relaxing, people become more anxious, a phenomenon called relaxation-induced anxiety. People with anxiety problems have such an extreme aversion to anxiety that they seek relaxation incessantly. They are incapable of allowing themselves to be anxious, and it is this unwillingness to be anxious that is a major factor in the development of severe anxiety problems. Instead of being taught how to relax, people with anxiety problems may benefit a great deal from learning how to be anxious, in the sense of learning how to be willing to be anxious. People with anxiety problems commonly find out that trying to relax is not relaxing. Although relaxation is something they seek desperately, because they see it as getting rid of anxiety, they eventually give up trying to relax because they don't see that it yields the results they crave. Many end up more convinced than ever that there is something terribly abnormal about them that makes them incapable of relaxing. It is true that people with anxiety problems also have a hard time relaxing. But it may be a mistake to think that this is due to having poor relaxation skills or that there is something deeply and mysteriously abnormal about them that makes them unable to relax. Another process that is going on, along with the incessant attempts to relax, is that people with anxiety problems are not only unwilling to be anxious, but are also unwilling to relax. Whenever they find themselves in a state of relaxation, they talk themselves into feeling anxious again, which is what they're used to, and which keeps them in a state of heightened alertness and vigilance. Perhaps what very anxious people need to learn is how to be willing to relax. A new approach would help anxious people be willing to relax or be anxious as the situation demands, and that both relaxation and anxiety are acceptable and natural. People with anxiety problems might even need to learn that anxiety and relaxation are not opposites or inconsistent with each other. For example, Anxiety and relaxation can be experienced at the same time. One can be physically relaxed and mentally anxious, or physically agitated but mentally relaxed, 
One can be anxious about something, but not about something else. There are other ways as well in which emotionally troubled people are understood as being defective. For example, they are sometimes seen as people who try very hard to gain sympathy from others by calling attention to themselves. With some people, and to some extent, this may be true, but the large majority of emotionally troubled people have the exact opposite problem. They hate calling attention to themselves, which is part of what leads to extensive withdrawal and social avoidance. Treating them as manipulative attention seekers has an unnecessarily shaming effect, which reinforces their own perception of being defective. People in general are often taught that negative thoughts and emotions are unacceptable and should be eliminated or controlled, and that recovery from their emotional problems depends on eliminating negative thoughts and emotions. These are beliefs that emotionally troubled people are convinced of and become further reinforced when others expose them to the same beliefs. They commonly exist in the general culture we live in. Basically, the belief is that negative emotions such as fear, sadness, anger, regret, and many others are at the root of their emotional problems, and that these emotions are unacceptable. They are told that negative emotions and thoughts are responsible for very bad things such as anxiety attacks, panic, avoidance, catastrophic thinking, worry, anticipatory anxiety, prolonged grief, hopelessness, helplessness, and even suicide. That is why so much effort is spent in convincing anxious and depressed people to manipulate their negative thoughts and emotions with the purpose of controlling and eliminating them. The goal is to, quote, fix the offending thoughts and emotions. Sometimes people are taught that such primary emotions as fear are acceptable, but that secondary emotions, such as fear of fear, are unacceptable. It's all right to be afraid, but it's not all right to be afraid of being afraid. The common belief is that fear of fear is harmful and causes anxiety disorders. This is accompanied by the belief that while the primary fears are controllable, the secondary fears are relatively easy to manipulate. The position taken in this book is that all emotions whether primary or secondary, whether positive or negative, are normal, acceptable, and essential to our well-being and our ability to adapt to our environment, and by and large should not be controlled or eliminated. It is easy to understand why negative thoughts and emotions are seen as being at the root of emotional problems, since they are so common and so prominent with people suffering from anxiety and depression. When emotionally troubled people seek professional help, they come saying, I hate these awful feelings and I desperately want to get rid of them. It is natural to conclude that people would get over their emotional problems if they would find ways to eliminate negative thoughts and feelings. But if that were the case, people should have little difficulty in getting well. They would simply need to identify their negative thoughts and stop thinking about them. Why is that not so easy to do? Perhaps emotionally troubled people are trying to do the impossible and it is these attempts that are creating problems for them. Perhaps it is all these vigorous attempts to eliminate negative thoughts and feelings that breed more negativity. We do not need to explain why people have negative thoughts and feelings. These are a very normal and natural part of our daily lives. What we really need to explain is why the emotions are so prominent, why they are persistent, and why they have acquired a life of their own. My belief is that the more negative we are about negativity, 
the more we create a vicious cycle of negativity. So that the negativity then becomes a chronic and prominent part of our everyday emotional life. It is logical to think that the more we control negativity, the less negative and the more positive we will feel. In reality, negating negativity simply creates more negativity. It may make a lot more sense to be at peace with our negative thoughts and feelings, rather than exerting enormous efforts to dispel them. It is the unacceptability of thoughts and emotions, and the vigorous efforts to control and eliminate them, that cause emotional problems. Significant emotional healing can only happen when emotionally troubled people make peace with their thoughts and emotions, by becoming accepting of them, and by abstaining from persistently manipulating them and doing battle with them. Emotionally troubled people are trying hard to get out of trouble with their thoughts and feelings by using the very means that have gotten them into trouble in the first place. If you have an emotional problem, try monitoring your thoughts casually and ask yourself what it means to eliminate a thought or control an emotion. What happens to a thought when you've controlled it? such as when you've distracted from it? Where has it gone? What has happened to it? Is there ever such a thing as getting rid of a thought or an emotion or a memory? If not, might it not be helpful to focus on abstaining from these futile attempts? 3. People with emotional difficulties are often told that their problems are unrelated to their lives in general or to their environments that they have little specific meaning or purpose, and that they are caused by processes that are mostly mysterious and not well understood. When the focus of emotional healing is limited to the control and elimination of unwanted thoughts and feelings, the emotional problems are not fully seen in their larger environmental and personally meaningful contexts. For example, people who persistently worry are told that their worrying is purposeless and that they should stop worrying. People who are depressed are shown how to learn to stop feeling depressed because their depressed feelings are impairments that need to be eliminated. Often, however, the persistent worrier may have a great deal to worry about in her life, and the depressed person may be living a life that is very conducive to depression, and so there is a good reason for being depressed. Emotionally troubled people have a hard time making these connections. They persistently report that their problems make no sense, that they are mysterious, that they come out of the blue, and that they are in large part unrelated to their environments and to their personal lives. By thinking that way, they neglect to see that their problems are meaningful and that they should be addressing the larger personal and environmental context in which these problems exist. Negative thoughts and emotions are not signs of emotional impairment, but are signals that convey specific meanings about issues and problems in our lives that we need to attend to. They invariably serve an important purpose, in the sense that they play a vitally adaptive role in our everyday lives. They also serve as guides that tell us how to deal with problems. An example to illustrate this would be if you were driving on a freeway and a car suddenly swerved dangerously in front of you, you anxiously sense an accident is imminent, and you put on your brakes to avoid disaster. Most of this happens automatically. Without this anxious response, you wouldn't be aware of any danger, and you wouldn't come up with the necessary response to avoid the accident. Anxiety has both signaled the presence of danger 
and guided you to respond appropriately. In effect, people develop emotional problems because they focus excessively on things that are working well, such as having negative thoughts and feelings, and are neglecting the contexts in which their emotional problems have developed. They neglect real-life problems that are causing real-life difficulties and focus their attention on processes that are not problematic, such as worrisome thoughts or depressed feelings. And so by this shift of attention, they create problems unnecessarily, that never need to exist. It is no wonder that they cannot make sense of their emotional difficulties, that they see them as puzzling and alarming, and that they sometimes wonder if they're losing their minds. If they had attended to the real-life problems as they first happened, if they had listened to the meanings of their emotional response, but essentially left their feelings alone, they wouldn't have developed emotional problems. Instead, they have placed their energies on how to effortfully control their thoughts and emotions, which has a very poor chance of success, while neglecting issues in their lives that have been in sore need of attention and resolution. People with emotional problems are on a wild goose chase trying to find and eliminate things that are not problems and neglecting issues in their lives that are problems. Healing from your emotional problems needs to focus on seeing that your fearful or depressive thoughts and emotions are not problematic, that they are never problematic, and that they make a great deal of sense if only you would give yourself permission to see the sense that they make. It would be helpful to see that your emotional and mental responses to events in your life play a significant positive role in helping you process these events and in helping you resolve problems. Whenever I first ask anxious clients to examine the meanings of their troublesome feelings, they usually stare at me as though I have said something really cryptic and mysterious. I encourage them to see that if something makes them anxious, it's because it is meaningful to them and that it is almost impossible to develop an anxiety problem about something that is not significantly meaningful. When people develop anxiety problems with driving, or flying, or separation, or poor health, or social embarrassment, it is because they feel threatened by thoughts of failure and dysfunction in these important areas of their lives. Anxiety disorders are never about senseless fears that develop out of nowhere and attack people haphazardly. They are about feeling threatened that something important and meaningful in their lives will not work out well, such as mobility, intimate attachments, good health, social competency, survival, or successful careers. When people can appreciate the meanings of their emotional problems, they can much better challenge their conviction that they're abnormal people, and can eventually see how supernormal they actually are. Seeing one's feelings as normal and meaningful can more easily lead to the self-acceptance and peace of mind that are essential to recovery. 4. A widespread belief exists that emotional problems are simple and are easy to overcome. People with emotional problems share that conviction and are unwilling to see how complex their problems are despite the ample evidence derived from their experience which tells them that their problems cannot be overcome by simplistic methods. They keep applying simplistic strategies and procedures to their problems that yield poor long-term results, but that they are convinced should work. Such beliefs complicate their recovery. For example, people are often told that all they have to do to get well is to think more rationally, 
which should take care of their emotional problems. They may be told that they basically have to stop avoiding and start taking risks, and that once they do so, they will be well. They may be told that focusing on retrieving repressed memories is essential to their recovery. They could be told that any or any combination of the following will heal them. Relaxation, abdominal breathing, meditation, biofeedback, systematic desensitization, behavioral exposure, assertiveness training, healthy diet, exercise, abstention from caffeine, and many other techniques and procedures. Although helpful and could have some usefulness when applied by skilled clinicians, there is no convincing evidence that any of these processes, or combination of these processes, is essential to long-term recovery. What often happens is that people are promised great results if they try these methods, often have good initial results, but then succumb to severe relapses that shake their confidence and hinder their ability to get well. Many become chronic shoppers for yet other methods that promise to work the best, and others become hopeless and give up trying altogether. Basic flaws exist with these approaches, in the way they often reinforce the client's own underlying belief system, which is strongly self-shaming, self-intolerant, and perfectionistic. For example, they reinforce the person's beliefs about being defective, which is why these methods and procedures are applied. They raise expectations about positive outcome to an unreasonably high level. And they imply that emotional and mental processes are relatively easy to control and eliminate. Many approaches imply that controlling and eliminating human processes can be done in a simple and mechanical way and ignore deeper problems regarding the client's loss of purpose and meaning, implying that such issues are irrelevant or of marginal importance. Emotionally troubled people respond favorably to approaches that are simplistic, that are linear and uncluttered, that promise to work quickly and perfectly, and that guarantee to bring about extensive changes that will eliminate their psychological difficulties. They love approaches that follow a tidy, straightforward path and that offer clear and purified expectations about recovery. Emotionally troubled people have no idea when they are exposed to unworkable promises and to simplistic solutions that they are only being exposed to their own unworkable belief system. The reason they respond positively to these promises is that this is the agenda they bring to the recovery process, an agenda which is strongly steeped in denial of how difficult their problems are. They are often convinced that a good quality life needs to be static and emotionless, because then it will be free of arousal and discomfort and pain and suffering. The incessant attempts to pursue lives that are emotionally static simply leads to mental and emotional stagnation, which results in all kinds of dysfunction. It rarely occurs to emotionally troubled people to question the efficacy of their unworkable beliefs. All they want is for someone to show them how to implement them. That the promises of these approaches do not fulfill their extraordinary expectations is part of what causes many people to eventually give up trying to get well. When sufferers, especially at the beginning of a treatment program, respond enthusiastically to something that is told to them, there is a distinct possibility that what is told to them is something that fits their belief system and that it would not help them. On the other hand, 
when they respond with skepticism to something that is told to them, it may be exactly what would help them, since their unworkable belief system is being challenged and new ideas are being offered that could have long-term effectiveness. For example, clients will usually respond positively if a therapist agrees with their assessment that they are defective in some manner and that their defects are unacceptable and need to be eliminated. On the other hand, clients will usually respond with raised eyebrows to such questions as, is it possible that your depression makes a lot of sense? Or, has it occurred to you that anxiety is a good thing? Or, have you thought that perhaps you are a very normal person? If sufferers want long-term positive outcomes with their psychological healing, they should come to appreciate more clearly what they already suspect, that their problems are complex, that recovery from these problems requires mindfulness and patience as they attempt to acquire and internalize a new belief system, and that their expectations of eliminating and controlling thoughts and feelings have been unreasonable and are impossible to meet. They need to be encouraged to see that, as they gradually adopt a new belief system that challenges their old belief system in meaningful and relevant ways, their emotional problems will be resolved. Okay, thanks for listening to this episode of Making Peace with Emotions. That was Chapter 2 of Amr Bharata's book, Making Peace with Anxiety and Depression. Next week we will read Chapter 3, which is called Human Suffering and the Quest for Self-Acceptance. To learn more about me and Amr Bharata, you can go to my website, which is marshallbolin.com. That's www.marshallbolin. If there are topics that you'd like to hear me discuss on future episodes, feel free to send me an email through the contact form on my website. Until next time, peace. Mm-hmm.